I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, a podcast devoted to thinking about things that relate to God. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And this is part two of our discussion on the mystery of Christ, his covenant, and his kingdom by Sam Renahan. But it's not just that we're talking about the book in general. We're talking about the topic of covenant theology. And we're joined by our friend Morgan Bird, who is a pastor down in South Carolina. And we're going to be talking about the second section today, which is on, I guess, what is... The kingdom of creation. The kingdom of creation. So this is the shortest section of the book. So it might be the shortest episode in in this this four-part series, but I don't know. We might get excited and talk about something for a while, so we'll see how it goes. So why don't we just start off with defining what does he mean by the kingdom of creation? What is that encompassing? What is that talking about? Yeah, so in the last section, uh, one of the things we didn't really cover was the idea of kingdom and how um, the covenant uh, covenants uh, lay the groundwork for how people ought to live within a certain particular kingdom. And what we're going to see is that the, the the second, third, and fourth section of the book deal with three different kingdoms. And so in this particular um, section, we're looking at a, the kingdom of creation, which he's going to argue is essentially um, all humans who have been born and will be born belong to this covenant, or excuse me, belong to this kingdom. And so that means that whatever is true of these two covenants is true of all the people who live in that kingdom. Uh, and so... Um, I think we should we should listen up because because we're born into the creation. This these two covenants um, belong to us. They're they're teaching us something about ourselves. Yeah, so he opens this section with um, the covenant of works, which is the covenant that God made uh, with Adam in the garden. And uh, just to return briefly to another point that that we made in the last uh, episode, um, this covenant is, is is something beyond just Adam's relationship. Um, to God as as creator and creature, this this goes beyond that. Um, so it falls in to more of a, a I guess you'd say a, a supernatural relationship. Um, so this is a covenant. I know a lot of people um, kind of push back against the fact or or the the idea that this is a covenant. And they say that well, there's no word um, covenant there. Uh, but I do think is it Hosea uh, where we you know. He talks about breaking the covenant like Adam broke it, um, and he he has a footnote here on on the first page where he says that this objection commits the word concept fallacy. Just because the word associated with a given concept is absent, it does not follow that the concept is absent. So, um, just because we don't see the word covenant um, in the opening chapters of, of Genesis doesn't mean that there's this isn't a covenant going on uh, between God. Yeah, just because the word Trinity isn't in the Bible doesn't mean that the concept doesn't exist or whatever else, whatever right. other example you can come up with. Yeah. So um, so by nature, um, Adam owes God obedience, but God does, does not owe Adam any kind of reward. Um, but in the covenant of works, uh, a reward is offered, and that is um, you know eternal life with God. And so Adam is, is part, he's responsible for, um, the, the moral law that God has written on his heart. We see that in Romans chapter two, um, that, that all humans have the law written in their heart, but there's also a positive law, which we discussed. And that is, you know, not to eat, um, from this particular tree that God has designated, um, as part of the covenant. So that kind of lays uh, a little bit of the groundwork about what 
Adam was responsible for. He was responsible to um, not eat from this tree and to follow uh, the moral law that God had written on his heart. Yeah, and I want to drill into the fact that we think that there is a covenant at creation with Adam, and there are multiple reasons for that. Like Brandon was mentioning, uh, just because the word isn't there doesn't mean it's there. The concept is. But there's also legitimate textual details that indicate that there is. So I know there's a lot of debate on the Hosea thing, whether Adam is talking about actual literal Adam and the garden mm-hmm. or just more of like conceptual idea of man. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's a better, uh, an even better reason to think that there's a covenant there. And it's when you look at the Noahic covenant, the terminology that is used there is the idea of recutting a covenant as if there was a covenant before that, that it was renewing in some sense. Um, it, and if it's going to use that terminology, it has to assume that there was something previous to that. So to me, that means that there is absolutely a covenant in creation that is renewed in the Noahic covenant later on. I mean, we'll get to the Noahic covenant when we get there, but I think I want to drill that home just because I think that there's textual evidence. I think there's theological reasons to think that Adam is truly in a covenant at creation. And another point is that, you know, Adam is appointed the, the federal head in this covenant, which means that once Adam fails in the fall and then the covenant of works is broken that Morgan or Jordan or somebody else who's one of Adam's um, posterity cannot come along and then somehow, um, you know, right that wrong because they are not the appointed federal head of this covenant of works. So that's another, I I think important point to just throw in there. Yeah, guys, I feel like this is um, the conversation about the covenant of works is a good case study on why we need um, to do theology with the winds of history sort of blowing through um, the breeze of history, because I think that it's so easy for us to go into Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and approach it from a 21st or 20th, 21st century lens. And what are we doing? We're trying to go in and have creation debates. We're going in, we're we're going in asking all the wrong questions. But when we allow um, people from the past to speak in to our experience as we do theology, uh, I think we start to slow down and we start to read the text a little more carefully. And we realize that maybe there's just totally different questions being asked of this text than the ones that we bring to it. And I, I think that um, one of the things you start to see as you slow down and read is that in many ways, um, Genesis 1 in particular, uh, is 1 and 2 are painting this picture as if um, the Garden of Eden is like a temple. Mm-hmm. It's presenting um, Adam as a priest. The, those words to work and keep it are the same words that then get used later in the Pentateuch at, that the priest, that was the, the words that, that, that they were to use to worship and obey. And so you're seeing this, this language um, you know, connected to the rest of the text. And, and I think that's why we have to, we have to do good and thoughtful um contextual exegesis where we're not just bringing our questions and trying to slam the text into the questions that we want asked we have to be willing to let the bible speak for itself and as you, as you let it breathe and as you start to read it uh you start to see these things like you almost you almost wonder you know what is that tree of life doing there and what would it have meant for Adam to reach out and, and take from that tree of life and enjoy eternal life? You know, why are those things even there? And then um, what does it mean? You know, I, I've heard um, 
I don't know how many times you guys, but I, how many times have I heard Romans three twenty three? I've heard it over and over and over again in my life, and it doesn't it doesn't say um, uh, for all have sinned and fell from a state of glory. Mm-hmm. It says all have sinned and fallen short of glory. Yep. In other words, there was this some glory that was out there in the future that, was... that 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 we could have had, we could have attained that Adam if he had been faithful in this probationary period, mm-hmm. he could have reached out and taken glory, yeah. but instead him and everyone after him have fallen short of right. glory. And I think again when you slow down and really start to read the text, uh, it really makes sense that that there is a covenant and there is a covenant of works going yep. on there. And and so in this covenant, there's there's the the blessing that you just mentioned that would happen. Like had he succeeded in this probationary period, and and had he been able to um, eat from the tree of life, you know he, it, that would have um, basically consummated creation, and 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 man would have been at perfect communion with God uh, for eternity. But the the flip side of that is um, the, the the curse um, uh, as a result of of Adam's failure, and that uh, that is death. So there's actually two different kinds of, of death, I think we could say. Um, one is um, physical death, which is something that happens over time. But then there's spiritual death, which, which happened right away. So, um, so when, when Adam and Eve, they, they eat from the tree um, that they're forbidden to eat from, um, you know, God has told them, once you eat from it, you will surely die. Well, they, they are surely going to die physically. But they are surely already dead spiritually uh, once they do that. So um, those, I, I guess that's a that's a good enough introduction on the the covenant of works. You know, what is it? What were the blessings and the um, the curses? But I don't know. Is there something no, else man, you want to add? All I heard was Morgan telling me that it's not right for me to ask how old the Earth is. <laughs> Uh, that was um, this is gateway you're to baiting me. Man. You're you're baiting me. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't. You think... should just get Morgan to talk about dinosaurs. That would be <laughs> oh, Brandon, I'm gonna leave oh, that man. alone. Yeah, let's 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 get back. No, but I don't know anything about these dinosaurs, so I'm really intrigued right now. <laughs> I think it's. Uh, I, I I don't think it's that we. I think I think we can we can bring. Um, we we can't help but bring our cultural situation to the text. We yeah. can't help it, but I think by allowing um, people from the past, generations from the past, uh, to help us look at the text, I think gives us sometimes better questions to ask. And I think that's why um, this recovery of, of covenant theology from a Baptist perspective is going to be so helpful for us. Um, Jordan, um, I do have one thing I remember you kind of mentioning. He says something on uh, page 70, uh, pretty strong. Uh, Renahan makes a comment about about the, uh, the importance of maintaining the covenant of works and specifically of seeing Adam as a representative head, as a federal head. And he goes so far as to say that if we remove the federal headship of Adam, then we lose um, we lose concepts like guilt. We lose concepts like imputation. We lose, um, he more or less says, we lose the gospel. And Let's so, be clear. Uh, he says, if yeah, we remove it. that, we remove, the, here, quote, we remove the reason for the incarnation and the eternally begotten Son of God. In fact, we remove the reason for God's wrath toward mankind and man's spiritual deadness and sins and trespasses. More than that, we remove the biblical framework within which to understand the category of imputation. Okay. End quote. So why don't you first, why don't you say, why do you feel like maybe that's a, a, 
maybe is slightly too strong of a statement. And then we can maybe discuss if we read that in its best light, how does that statement help us? Sure. So, I mean, I think if I had him here sitting across from me and I asked him the questions that I have, we would come to an agreement. So just keep bear that in mind. I'm I'm not like overly attacking him half the time when, when I get annoyed, sort of attack. Look, when I get annoyed <laughs> at stuff, most of the time it's with people I agree with and I know I agree with them, but the way they say it, I don't like. So it's just me being overly particular and o- overly OCD, but I don't see how it follows that if we remove this governmental structure and the federal headship that we're, we're removing um, the the reason for the incarnation or or the eternally begotten Son of God. I don't see how that's removing the reason for for wrath towards mankind and spiritual deadness. I see how it would remove the category of imputation. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense to me. Yeah, but I don't see how if I take away federal headship, I've lost the incarnation. I think you can sin outside of a covenantal structure, and there still be a need for an incarnation. Now that incarnation is going to look different. Because it's not going to take the form of a federal headship where I get free benefits uh, because Christ is my federal head. It's going to look different. I, I, I give you that. But I don't think it's as drastic and damning as that quote would say it is. Yeah, and I think it's good, um, man. I think it's good. I, I think I think one of the things I noticed was I found this book at some at times hard to critique because it was written in such a pastoral way and and, and he he's not it's not a polemic it's very much him just presenting his his view yeah. in his case and so i think that um part of the reason that he probably says it the way he says it is in his system or in 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 in, in the people that for the people that he pastors uh for him to remove this covenant of works then i guess would remove like you said his version of the incarnation or his version of why uh, there is wrath towards sin and that kind of thing. But I do think that the the concept of a federal head helps us make sense then when we get to Christ and we ask, what is Jesus doing? You know, why is he li- why does it matter if he lives this perfect life? Why does it matter if he like, okay, so he dies on the cross. What does that mean for me? Yeah. I think it helps us having that category in place of federal headship to understand that Someone else can represent another person, and it's not unethical to do that. In fact, it's it's a, yeah, it's covenant because uh, I think we do need. Let's maybe talk a little bit more about that that relationship between federal headship and imputation, because I mean, imputation is key to you know our theology. So um, rather than than righteousness being um, infused into us, and we um, are progressively justified, I guess you could say. Um, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, and this is the key, in the same way that Adam's guilt is, was imputed to us. And so if you don't have an understanding of federal headship that sort of parallels Adam and Christ, you you lose one with the other. So if you don't have the imputation of Adam's guilt, then how exactly are we going to understand that, that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. And I'm trying to think of, uh, you know, there's that book, what Christian dogmatics edited by Swain and Allen. And there's a chapter on original sin in there. And, and Oliver Crisp does that. And he goes against the federal headship view. I don't remember what he says or how he argues. I disagreed with him, but now I'm sitting here thinking, I, I wonder how he does it. Cause I, I 
I do think there's quite a few people who would who would not want to go. The, yeah, the imputation, and they're yeah. Protestants, right? For sure. Uh, I, I get why Rome would want to go against this type of view. It makes sense because they have a different view of justification. Yeah, but it doesn't under like it doesn't really make sense on its face to me why a Protestant would want to leave this yeah particular version. Because then, if you say we're only, um, you know, we only inherit like corruption or something from from Adam, and the the I. And then it's our, it's like our actual sins are the only thing that makes us guilty. Then it seems like that maps on to, okay, well now Christ like gives us this, I don't know, spark of righteousness or something. I don't know how to put it. And then it's actually our works that, that progress out of that, that would, that would actually be the foundation of our righteousness. Like it would, it would have to be something that we do if we lose the category of imputation. I don't know. Well, and I think what's hard is I think there is a sense in which we are corrupt. We do we do receive a corrupt nature. Yeah, yeah, We're yeah. not just um, yeah. and, and you know I think Ephesians two is where you get this such a strong statement that we are uh, children of wrath. Yeah. I mean that is such a strong statement that it's like by nature by yeah. by nature we are children of wrath, and so um, you know you just you get you get this sense in which um, we really do need more. Than the incarnation, we don't need less than the incarnation. We don't. We need more than Jesus just recapitulating our life. Yeah. We also need His death. We need Him to stand in our place, and we need to Him not to just reverse our nature, but for Him to offer us His righteousness. Yeah. And I think that that category of federal headship is what makes that I think uh, logically possible for yeah. us to to have that category. Yeah. I mean, I'm overly convinced of the need of federal headship. So. I, I know there's other people out there who like they want to poo poo on which does get headship. into like a disc I mean I know we we've poo pooed like the the the, <laughs> the 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 like looking at Genesis for like age of the earth kind of stuff or whatever but this is why it's absolutely critical that you have a historical Adam right because yeah. if we're drawing this parallel from Adam to Christ well uh, if Adam's not a historical figure, then well, where does that go when we start talking about Jesus? And then you get into all kinds of funky areas and stuff. So um, it is important. But uh, I guess unless you guys have anything else to say about Adam, we can move on to the Noahic covenant. Yeah, we'll move on to Noah. So it's the same um, scope as the covenant of works because it's the same kingdom, the kingdom of creation. Um, where do you guys want to go on the discussion of Noah? Y'all have anything specific that you want to highlight? Man, uh, you know, obviously the Noahic Covenant is very similar to the Creation Covenant with Adam. And I think that's obviously for a reason. You know, it's the same aim of being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth, mastering it. So there's a lot of overlap. So maybe we talk about some more potentially practical theological implications from this. So did you want to go somewhere first? well, I was just going to say the, the the two things that he said that I, I wanted to make sure um, that that I touched on was was that um, that the Noahic covenant is is like common grace, so it's yeah. it's, it's common to to everyone. This isn't um, God's salvific grace; it's not um, only applicable to the elect, but but this is so so the this common grace covenant with Noah has an end greater than itself. So it's he, the way he puts it here is that he says the mystery of Christ will unfold in this theater of preservation. So the Noahic covenant really is there to preserve God's creation until 
the seed of the woman comes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that was one thing. And then the other thing, to Jordan's point about maybe more practical stuff, is that he says um, he says the covenant of works curses and con- and condemns the Noahic covenant dictates how to live in that world. And you know, a lot of, just for one example, when we think about things like. Um, the death penalty, which is a very practical thing, like mm-hmm. a, a lot of people who who are going to want to, myself included, who want to argue that the death penalty um, is a, a good thing, uh, are going to go back to God's covenant with Noah. Um, you know, if 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 you shed the blood of man, your blood will be shed. Um, that blood for blood principle is there in the Noahic covenant. So that is one um, one one practical um, outworking of the Noahic covenant. So what would you guys say, we've looked at now at these two covenants really briefly, if you were to categorize, I know I know how we, it's going to be pretty easy to categorize the first, uh, but if you were to categorize these two covenants, the covenant of works and then the Noahic covenant as either covenants of works or covenants of grace, which, which ones would you put in the category with these two covenants? Well, the covenant of works is a covenant of works. Okay, so that's pretty obvious. And, um, yeah, I mean, I guess I just said it's common grace, um, for the Noahic covenant, but there is, I mean, there are commands, mm-hmm. I guess, in the Noahic covenant. So, but I think, I think that brings up a good point. Just because there are commands doesn't mean it's a covenant of works because right. God is essentially in the Noahic covenant. God is making a promise and he is promising to keep that promise yeah. whether they obey or not. Now yeah, that doesn't no, mean there aren't commands. Right. But it means that that the the promise is not determined upon those commands. And the only reason I want to bring that out is just because as we continue to work through these covenants, um, I think it's just a helpful... This is just a helpful illustration. Because that's going to come up again with Abraham. Exactly. This is just a helpful illustration to see how one covenant, Adam was told, hey, do this, don't do this. If you do, there's consequences. He did it. There were consequences. Now he's coming and he's making another covenant with Noah and... There are no consequences based on what Noah does or does not do. God is saying, I am going to stabilize the earth. I'm going to, I, I will never destroy the earth again with a flood. And it doesn't matter what you do. Today. It doesn't matter what you yeah. do. Yeah. Like I'm going to keep this. And so that is a good illustration of what a covenant of works looks like. Yeah. Or, excuse me. Grace. <laughs> a covenant of grace yeah. I mean, looks yeah. like. That's the whole point of the bow pointed upwards at the sky. I mean, it's supposed to be like, you know, a bow and arrow, like yeah. as if he points the weapon at himself so that. He would never do this or else he would kill himself, which is an impossibility. Yeah. So the practical stuff that I wanted to go over, mm-hmm. it's not totally practical. It's more, it's theological. We had been talking before we recorded about the cultural mandate and the implications for the church today. So I guess maybe Morgan, you just fill me in on what is the cultural mandate and what's the trendy way to take it. Sure. So one of the things that we looked at in the Covenant of Works was that Adam did uh, have commands that God had given him about things he was supposed to do. Uh, For example, he was supposed to cultivate and keep the land. Uh, He was supposed to take dominion. Uh, He and his wife were supposed to um, essentially litter the earth with images of God. And they were supposed to see the garden expand, you know, over the earth. And in that way, uh, pre-fall, uh, Adam was going to be building the kingdom of God. He was going to be increasing the kingdom of God on the earth. 
And I think that what happens now is people go back into that um, that first covenant, the covenant of works, and they pull out that that those commands that God had given uh, to Adam, and they act like we now today can do the same thing, uh, that we can um, expand the kingdom of God by, for example, having kids or by um, you know doing our work well or by cultivating cultivating the land, so to speak. And I think that um, it's just it has become really popular, if I may say, to almost replace the Great Commission with the cultural mandate. That maybe what the church is supposed to be doing is not to be making disciples, but is to be going back and doing what Adam uh, was doing in the garden. And, and I think we have to be careful. I think we have to be nuanced. I think there's a reality in which we do still have to be responsible for uh, our jobs. We have to work well. Uh, I think it's still a great, good blessing to, uh, to have children and to um, to bring new people into the earth that way by the gift of God. Uh, but we have to be careful to remember that we aren't building the kingdom by doing that. We aren't we aren't given the same opportunity that Adam was because we aren't in we we have broken the covenant. In Adam, we have broken the covenant, and we are we've been kicked out of the garden, and there's no way back in. And so, um, yeah, I I think we, you know, there, there's more to say, but I think that's how I see it playing out right now. Yeah, I don't really, I don't have anything to add to that. I mean, I, I, I do think, yeah, I mean, I don't know. There, you know, I think there's a lot of discussion that goes on about justice that relates to this um, thinking like, okay, my main goal as a Christian is to fulfill this cultural mandate to spread love and mercy and justice and all these things versus this. I know there's somebody out there who likes to basically say, you know, the great commission is completely disconnected for Baptists uh, from everything else in the Bible. And it's only about the great commission. Um, where it's just you just make disciples and you don't care about anything else and you're forgetting all these other things. But I think to, to your point, Morgan, I think there's a balance at play where, yeah, I'm absolutely caring about my own personal family. I'm absolutely caring about my work. Uh, I'm trying to produce things that are encouraging and, you know, loving my neighbor and all those basic things. I don't think that goes away. But there is a sense in which I. I do have a new responsibility to make disciples that is different in certain ways than what we find here in, in these initial, two initial creations. It's not as simple as I just have children and I go outside and I farm and I make art and I make music and things like that. It seems more complicated than that. It seems I, this is not my area, so I am totally spitballing here. <laughs> Um, no, but I think it's fair. And I think if, if you guys do end up picking up the book and reading it, I think you'll see that um, he's, you know, he's fairly charitable. Uh, we're actually drawing this implication out of what he said, but he's fairly charitable to say that in the Noahic covenant, some of those same things are echoed from what God had told Adam. Yeah. And uh, that, that, that's important, but that it, that the purpose of it is, is now different um, because of the fall uh, we have to make the dis- this distinction of of these things that we're doing as a part of the kingdom of creation aren't building the kingdom of Christ. Mm-hmm. They're two different kingdoms, and some of us live in both of them. And I think we have to do a good job living in both of them. Um, but I I think I think he does a good job. Both it really to me that section of the book took on a really pastoral tone, mm-hmm. where he was just talking about how 
Um, you know, we do live in this hard world and we do have to go to work and we do have to, to do these things. But um, there's something in that, that Noahic covenant that, that whispers a promise, that whispers that God has a plan for the world, that God is faithful, and that he is going to, to bring, um, bring about his salvation in the world in, in a more stabilized environment through the Noahic covenant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, Renahan, he, he says as much, this is a cultural mandate as part of a covenant ruling a kingdom, and it applies to all mankind equally, and everyone must take this very seriously. All mankind is called to raise up and establish structured and successful societies, pursuing cultural achievement and growth. Man is not called to sit in the dirt and mope, we're called to work. So there is a very real sense where we do, we should take this seriously. I don't I don't think we can just say the church is a purely spiritual entity that has no relationship whatsoever to the daily lives of other people. I do think there's a sense where we should be endeavoring and working towards bring cultivating, uh, for lack of a better term, prosperity among all people. Uh, not in the prosperity gospel sense, but just in the, I guess, fruitful and, and flourishing sense where I am called to help other people have better lives as best I can. I don't think that's our primary chief mission as mm-hmm. Christians. Uh, we, have, we have a superseding mission that is, that is of greater importance, I think. I, and maybe I'm stating it wrongly, but I, I feel like we have two missions now. Non-Christians have this one cultural mandate, you know, create societies, do those things. But then in addition, Christians have this secondary mandate of making disciples mm-hmm. that coincides a lot. I, I don't know how to clearly parse them. It seems that they are linked, connected, um, but I don't want to go out and just say the church's mission is to build societies. Yeah. I don't think that is the church's mission. I think the church's mission is to make disciples. And if anything, I mean, I'm not... This is not if this is the perspective you're coming from, and we're trying to be charitable. But I mean, the very next narrative, or one of the one of the next narratives in the scriptures is is Babel, is the Tower of Babel. It, it's a people who are, in one sense, trying to build a culture that reaches to heaven, and they're they're essentially trying to do what um, that what they should what what Adam was supposed to do, but uh, they weren't doing it within the context of a covenant that God had established with them. And so it was a faulty, it was a faulty mission, uh, in that sense. And so, um, you know, yeah, I think, I think we have to hold it in balance. Uh, but we have to remember (laughs) that we're not Adam and we're not in the garden and we, we haven't, uh, we're not in the state of innocence Mm -hmm. like he was. And so, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think it's an interesting topic and, uh, I, w- I would love to talk to somebody who's more, you know, informed on this at some point and just understand how to think through the connections between here. Because, it, I mean, Renahan's pretty clear what the Noahic Covenant's designed to do. And it's clearly we're under the Noahic Covenant in some sense still. Yeah. So it's not like that was completely deleted from our Bible, you know, yeah. on the coming of the New Covenant. Well, it's almost like it's almost like the command to Adam and Noah is the same, but the the outcome is different. The yeah. outcome has changed. Like what's possible now is different. Mm-hmm. That for yeah. Adam, Adam could have obeyed and he could have built the kingdom of God. Yeah. Noah is going to obey and it's going to be hard and yeah. he's going to sweat and yeah. it's going to be like tough. And Adam sweated too. <laughs> After, you know, the fall, I guess. <laughs> is sweat a part of the fall? Like literal sweat a part of the fall? Tell me. I need an answer because I sweat so much. <laughs> Sorry, that's... Is that a question that the text was written to answer, Jordan? 
My Bible is a science textbook, so get off my back. Oh, my goodness. Hey, I think one other thing, you talk about practical theological implications. I mean, one of the things that I see in the Noahic Covenant, or just through the flood, is that the flood comes, it cleanses the earth. Uh, it almost feels the like when you're... earth? It almost feels like when you're reading it. Yeah. Did the flood really flood the whole earth? <laughs> Tell me. Was Pangea a thing? I want to know. I want these answers. It almost feels like... I've read answers in Genesis. You're going to get a fresh start. It it reads like a fresh start, right? Yeah. But then within a matter of a few verses, you see that no amount of uh, outward cleansing yeah, could cleanse the heart. Yeah. That, that the heart of man had been tainted. It had been wrecked. It had been ruined. The, yeah. the nature of man, including Noah, was corrupt. Mm-hmm. And so no amount of... Uh, earthly cleansing or God stabilizing things was was really going to fix the problem. So while the the story, the narrative with Noah sounds so hopeful, you get a sense that it's there's got to be something more. There's got to be something bigger and better and other that mm-hmm. would come in the future. And if you've watched the movie Noah, oh my, you know it's <laughs> does this mean Morgan's not oh going to answer the question about if it's a global flood or not? You never answer that question. We both ask you. <laughs> we'll, we'll let him punt. I'm being baited I'm being baited yeah. today dinosaurs and we'll let him punt <laughs> I'm just getting you back from putting me on the spot last episode so we'll call it even and we'll be charitable to one another from now on it'll be good alright well you guys have been listening and I think this is a good I guess second follow up to to the the covenant of creation and the Noahic covenant uh, next up we're going to be doing part 3 and part 4 the kingdom of Israel, and then um, the following one. So I, I really hope you tune into those. I think the those are probably going to be the most debate that we'll have are going to be probably in part three and maybe part four. So if you're into that type of thing, then tune in for that. Otherwise, I think you're just into covenant theology. So keep on listening. And anyway, those who've been listening, you've been listening to the only analytic po- and analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet getting ahead of myself. All right. Thanks for tuning in.